listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. I did a little bit on the cookie, not too, too much, but yeah, we were out last weekend for a day. Nice. Yeah, out camping, yeah. Yeah. Have you been out fishing? I haven't. I'm hoping to go this this coming week. We got we're gonna head to the South Okanagan for family camp and see cool. if I can catch some uh, invasive species. Ah, eat the invasive. Hashtag eat the invasives. <laughs> I like that. I've been ever. It's like two or three springs now. I've been trying to fit in going over to the Creston Valley because there's a wildlife biologist I know over there knows of a little wetland where the invasive bullfrog has come up out of the United States Hmm. and you can harvest them. Right. And so I was going to go do the nighttime frog gigging thing, but, uh, with Turkey season and spring bear season and stuff, it just kind of never get around to getting, doing the midnight run over to Creston. So how do you eat them? How do you eat them? Yeah. Legs, I guess. Yeah, that's primarily, but I think, um, they do use the front end of them and stuff. It, they kind of end up like, from what I've seen, sort of like buffalo wings. You end up like with four little quarters. So that'd be that'd be. But good. I mean, they're they're big, right? So it's like, heck, why not? So you just have to know what you're doing because there's also the uh, um, the red listed leopard frog mm. over there too through the whole Creston Valley. So Don't it's like you you really have also. to know about. <laughs> <laughs> the big ear discs on the side and the shape and coloration and stuff. So right. I, I I don't advocate for people to go do it yet. So yeah. now you've got a fly fishing seminar after this that you want to get to, right? BHA? I hope so. Yeah. And okay. it's, it's through the student club and on their faculty advisor. So yeah. I do try to catch those when I can. And yeah, and we'll, learn we'll watch the time. More of a, was, a stream fisherman. So this whole interior lakes thing has always been, a total mystery to me. I feel like oh, I know nothing. Know. Oh man, those guys are weird. They're a different. They're a different breed. Lake, Lake fly guys. fishermen are. Oh, uh huh. Yeah, I, I don't really trolling with their fly it, lines. No, like the guys that'll sit there with chronomids forty feet down, man. Oh, they're just oh, pumping stomachs and counting yeah. ribs on chronomids and oh, they're they are. Uh, yeah, they're a different breed. It's cool, yeah. but I don't have the patience for it. So as a student in those things, are you all like academic, like with your questions? Like, do you get into like the physics of the fly line and, um, you know, and you need the formula for like the sine wave amplitude of how the line unfolds and all that? And <laughs> you're, you're that you're that one student and the instructor's like, God, I wish they would just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's a, that's a fair question. I think one of the things I did earlier on in my career was make a distinction between playtime and work. And I tried to do it all at once and uh, as a fishing guide and, and started to like neither, started to like not guiding and not fishing and not work and that kind. And so it was, uh, it's nice to keep something kind of on my own, you know, and not quantify it too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To the extent I can turn off my science brain, it's good to have those things. That's why I like yeah. cooking, gardening, those sorts of things that really take me right. away from papers and science and all that. Yeah, man. People yeah. don't actually realize how much work there is involved in being 
a fishing guide. They're like, oh, it must be sweet. You just get yeah. to go fishing all day. You're like, it's not the same. I'm a babysitter, man, pretty much. <laughs> Line detangler, hook extractor. Patience, man. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like just not being able to show any physical pain when a client blows a fish <laughs> or tangles or sends another one into the bank. Or you're just like, no. Yeah. Let's just try again. Keep going, and inside you're screaming. You're like, "Oh my god!" And and then if you're a guy that you have to point out everything that's living on and in the water and on the banks yeah. by their scientific names, like that adds another layer of yeah. complexity to being a guide. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, so we'll we'll uh, we'll make sure you get to that uh, fly fishing seminar. So, hey everybody, um, welcome. It's uh, Mark Hall here, your host, and it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. This episode of the Hunter Conservationist Podcast is sponsored by the Hideout Restaurant and Brew House in Cranbrook, BC. COVID restrictions are slowly starting to lift in this province, which means that indoor dining is now back. Woohoo! Why not enjoy some lunchtime? Or on, on a nice afternoon on the patio, or if the weather's not cooperating, then just go inside. Both options are now open, so you really don't have an excuse now for not going down there. Four Red Seal chefs creating food from scratch using local farm ingredients wherever possible. Knowing where your food comes from is important to us, and we know it's important to the listeners as well. Your meal is just that much better when you know it comes from ingredients as local and fresh as possible. Take the family out for dinner, grab some friends for a beer, whatever the case may be, make sure you head down and see the folks at the Hideout Restaurant and Brew House in Cranbrook. And a shout out to iHunter for being another episode supporter who still have the sweet deal on for you. They have not, they have apps for nine provinces and territories, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. It's a tool that we say all the time every time we talk about it, Guys, you really should check out the public lands feature. Whether you're an absolute beginner or you are the most hardcore, avid, diehard hunter who knows everything, um, everyone still runs into spots, times, places where you're not exactly sure. So give yourself the peace of mind to know exactly where the private land ends and the public land starts. So the folks down at iHunter are still offering 20% off your first year of the public land subscription. Head over to web ihunterapp.com and use the code THC podcast when you subscribe to the public land subscription. All that information can be found in the show notes so you can stop tearing your desk drawer apart looking for a pen. Thanks to the folks down at iHunter for offering that discount and supporting this episode again. Yeah, you bet. Great tool. Yeah, you get the satellite maps right on your phone, shows you where you are, drop pins, you can draw polygons and stuff, and hunting regulations. Yeah. They actually, they've just... got the uh, the desktop version too now. I was playing around with that. It's really cool. I, uh, I was actually, I just did a uh, an area calculation of the property we we're on to see exactly how how big it is i wasn't quite sure and uh yeah it's cool it's super useful it's nice to have it up on Great the big tool. screen too you can do some preseason sweet stuff right on so there's a discount for listeners go get yourself the iHunter app and private land subscription right on and uh we're joined today by dr adam ford son of actor harrison 
<laughs> Nephew of Doug. Yeah. <laughs> you were on the podcast last year um, talking about when you lose your conservation, you've misplaced conservation. So it was a whole episode about how to find your conservation, as, as I remember, misplaced conservation. See, we've actually, we've just had, now that you're on the show a second time, we're just, I kind of like gave it away. We're just kind of using you like to get your dad on the show so we can talk about Indiana Jones and, <laughs> and the next episode that apparently they're making. So, um, but anyways, we'll get through some good wildlife stuff or whatever, but ho hopefully you can get us, get us connected up with pops there. So. Maybe we can get you a cameo. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. On, uh, on, uh. And one of the new Indiana Jones, that would be good. Get the Hunter Conservationist logo up there. Yeah. No, uh, welcome back, man. It's, um, I'm excited about this episode to kind of uh, dig into learning more about science, uh, particularly wildlife science and kind of like, like more, the more bigger picture stuff, I think is kind of, kind of what we're talking about. Um, how it works, how it fits in, you know, those, those sorts of things. There's been a really big, um, movement lately in British Columbia and I, I guess kind of maybe across the country of the narrative shifting on, you know, at least in the hunting community, I think in maybe both hunting and non-hunting communities through this narrative about science-based wildlife management. And, and it's a buzzword, uh, everybody's saying it. Uh, I don't think we all quite know or agree on what that means because um, I know on the hunting side, um, people go back to the North American model of wildlife conservation where one of the tenants says that um, science should be the tool to discharge wildlife policy. And what usually follows after that is in wildlife management, use science, not emotion. And I don't know if, you want to weigh in on that a little bit? I think, you know, human emotions, hunters are emotional. I've always said that, right? Like mm -hmm. we, we care about this stuff because we want to do certain things and there's certain values and beliefs we have and things that we enjoy doing. Uh, human emotions are anger, you know, sorrow, joy, you know, th those sorts of things. But I think what they're trying to get at is, and this is at least where I come from on it, is what we're talking about in science-based wildlife management is the use of evidence, objectively collected evidence, and let the evidence tell us what's happening, let's just say with an animal population. But then you still have to, everybody still has to weigh in on what are the objectives and what are the values that we bring to the table and how do we use the evidence. Um, so the use use science not emotion thing um what do you think about that adam um yeah this is complicated but i like to see science at the table that's something that i've advocated for <clears throat> i don't see science as being the thing to make decisions that's tricky to say but you know a lot of what you're talking about science-based wildlife management is about making hard decisions and it's about trade-offs um, I like science to help inform those trade-offs for managers. I like the approach uh, in making those decisions to be as transparent as possible. We're doing this because of X, Y, and Z. We're going to measure things before and after we implement this new policy. 
that's one of the huge things that uh, is missing from the science-based wildlife management approach is things are done and there's not a lot, not a strong sense of monitoring the results. And that's the whole adaptive management piece that is easy, again, easy to say, uh, much harder to do or, or much rarer to see done well. Right. No, that makes, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if you're making a decision to work towards achieving objective, then how do you know if you're, if you're hitting the target, right? So yeah. it's kind of like science is, would you kind of say like on the front end and the back end kind of? Yeah, I think it's, I kind of see a, a vision of, that I have for science, you know, in an, an ideal world is it, uh, there's a science person in a room, you know, and there's different types of science or social science, you know, ecological science that are related to wildlife, you know, wildlife management has this human dimensions piece that I think is definitely overlooked, especially in BC. Um, the ecology piece is, is I think fairly well served and, you know, those voices and, and you know, indigenous knowledge as well are, are advising people that are making decisions about what the trade-offs are. That person then says to the rest of society, uh, you know, we see that there's going to be an impact to the species, but because of these other values, this is what we're doing. That's the part that I get bummed out about in where science kind of stops is we don't expect it to rule the world, but um, I would like to see people show some more support for how they arrived at their decisions and, and allow, you know, the public to understand things better because when it's sort of in a sort of a black box model where maybe they're making decisions to support jobs or whatever the case may be, which, you know, that's the reality of society is these, you know, these trade-offs. Um, I think it leads to a lot of resentment and distrust of government and scientists. And uh, in the end of the day, I think that harms us. Uh, it's hard to, hard to come together when, you know, uh, people are being kept out of the decision-making process. Right. So let's dig into a couple things there, maybe explain trade-offs. So when you're talking about science helps decision-making in, in trade-offs, um, yeah, maybe, maybe tell us a little bit about what your, what your thoughts are about how to define that. Hmm. Trade-offs. I think about some of the work that we do, um, you know, how many wildlife crossing structures can you build on a highway and get a reasonable number of animals across the road? <clears throat> you know, uh, at some point you could just say, well, say in Banff, like, why don't we just bury the whole highway? Why do we even need crossing structures? Why do we even need a highway in Canada's flagship national park? That was my idea, by the way. <laughs> bury, bury the highway bury the road right and yeah. make it one giant overpass oh, yeah that... I, yeah i asked how, how many people would would drive through the national park if they couldn't see anything if they were underground and they knew the animals could cross the roads freely above them would you would you be willing to sacrifice that so i think it's the whatever billions of dollars it would take to pull that off it just seems that that money is pulling from something else in our society so those are the trade-offs i that come to mind is how do we you know, at some point there's a, there's a pie, you know, my colleagues get a little, I don't know, we have these debates anyways about is there, is triage a thing? Do we really actually have to sacrifice um, certain areas or certain species or certain populations because of limited budgets? Why don't we just grow the budget to solve the problem? And can you hear that? That's, that's your uh, ungulate 
Yeah, it's my <laughs> two-legged four-year-old ungulate. <laughs> that's that's wearing wearing some hiking boots, I think. Um, anyways, yeah, it's it's I think trying to uh, quantify those trade-offs so we know are we you know um, trading off well, moose and, moose versus caribou is a great example. You know what do we mm. want to see and 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 in those areas where that's a problem or where that's being looked at closely, um, you know the, the underlying issue is usually forestry. So you've got different actors coming to the table and can we have all the things in all the places? And the answer is usually not. Uh, we can do some things in some places, but we can't do everything well in the same spot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's kind of um, my sort of vision or an explanation too of the trade-offs is, is any decision in wildlife management, like you kind of, as a decision maker, you want to be able to say, you know, okay, we've got three options here, how to achieve this goal, A, B, or C. Um, if you choose A, this is what you're going to get and this is what you're not going to get. And then you do each one of the options or A, you're going to get there quickly, but only two people can hunt mule deer. Right. Um, B, it's going to take a long time to get there, but everybody can still go out, like those sorts of things, you know, that, uh, and then people have to like then make those trade-offs, you know, um, something takes a long time, but everybody could still be involved or, you know, or like what you were saying, the trade-off between moose and caribou and, um, you know, forestry jobs versus the rate that a caribou population can recovery, like, like trade-offs and that's, a huge part of how science helps, is it not? Yeah, I think it's adding um, the quantitative piece to some of those discussions. Instead of it saying, I, th I think it's this much, I like to see it add some certainty or more accurately described as uncertainty. That's the other thing that we do is try to quantify what we know and what we don't know or our degree of confidence in something. Okay, that makes sense too, yep. So yep. we might on average see a trend in a population, but <clears throat> you know, at a, at a different scale or, or something, it's, uh, it's actually not changing. You know, it's, can we, you know, some of the tools we use are to separate what we call the signal from the noise and capture, you know, what's the, what's the hazy bit and what's the very clear picture. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, that's a good, uh, good kind of summary on trade-offs and, so you've, you've probably got a list of things written down here about, uh, about science now that you want to dig into, you want me to, want me to prompt you. I can, I can prompt you on those. Um, we kind of, kind of co-developed a, a list or you developed a list of things to, to dive into here. So let's maybe start at the highest level and just kind of talk about the science industry. Yeah, that's, I think that's what you had kind of like the industry of science. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it is. There's there's money in it and a lot of it's public. So it's often not thought of in my world as, a, as an industry like the private sector industries are, but certainly there's a, you know, a sense of capturing funding and creating a product from it. And we, as a, you know, in, in the science world, talk about them as research products sometimes. Um, and these are things like papers or reports or analyses um, that we can share with the public. So yeah, like the, the big picture is we've got academic science, <clears throat> you know, the universities and, and uh, professors and graduate students, we can talk about what that looks like later. 
Uh, there's the private sector. So companies will have their own scientists and then there's the whole uh, field of private consulting. So providing advice to government or industry usually, or even academics on a sort of usually a shorter term basis and a more targeted expertise. Um, there's government scientists, um, which is a place that um, has really changed over the years. It, it, during the course of my career, it, in some places that was a viable option for a career, especially in the United States. I see, you know, fellow mm -hmm. graduate students actually thinking that getting a job with an agency is a real career option. And when I was coming to university, there was no way. There was no way that you could just think that, that that's something you could uh, you could get. The jobs are so rare and government was so cut back in those days that it wasn't really an option, but it's uh, I think it's great to see at both federal and provincial level that a lot of that's getting put back and restored because the legacy, especially in BC of uh, government run science is incredible. And we're still learning from it. And we still uncover these studies that were done. Uh, you know, Vancouver Island in the in the 80s and 90s was just really hopping. And those are the models that we're trying to uh, put forward today, where we have government, academics, industry, all on board. And within that now, you know, there would be First Nations would have a more significant role. Um, and try to bring people together to do science. And that's the way it's going to be seen as legitimate. And I think that's the only way it's going to get funded these days. Uh, so I think, anyways, maybe I'll save that rant for later, but um, <laughs> trying to find the intersection of those different sectors of the science industry is uh, a good place to be too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, science in governments, both provincial and federal are, kind of like where the politics comes in right like we know the whole story in canada of you know back in you know the the collapse of the eastern cod stock fishery in the atlantic provinces and the federal scientists that were warning of it and the whole sort of like you know muzzling and suppression of you know what what their advice was and stuff and then you know we actually actually saw that come to fruition and you know and and here in british columbia like you know, there was wildlife scientists in government got built up and then it kind of got tore, you know, tore down and gutted uh, everything from scientists that were studying how to classify ecosystems and plants and plant community responses to the grizzly bear research. And um, I don't know if a lot of people know, but, you know, a, a fair bit of the science that managed the grizzly bear hunt in British Columbia came from government itself from the forest sciences program of the ministry of forests like that was where dr mcclellan was and yep. um garth moat and stuff and <clears throat> you know that was all all in government and it was it was world-class science i agree it is world-class it has a there's a legacy there that <clears throat> i think is going to be hard to to ever replicate and one of the things that i see working about that particular segment of history uh bruce wouldn't like me to call it history but um is is his independence or the the independence of those government scientists and that's so key and i think that's one of the pieces that is a little bit harder to put back even if you can fund internal government science and there are some great ones still um it's trying to find a way for them to feel like they have an independent voice that can speak science to the decision makers without you know, let let the decision makers make those tough calls. I'm going to do the right kind of science for society 
inside of government. I think that's the harder place to pull. And I think that's the like a more current approach to that, I think is where some government folks do find value in partnering with academics where we have a little bit more latitude. We have a lot more latitude um, probably to, uh, to have that independent voice. Right. Yeah. No, that, that definitely makes sense. Cause if you're a government scientist and you know, you're, studying fisher populations in British Columbia and you come back and say, guess what? It's your forest industry that's driven this thing almost to extirpation. You know, it's like you need to be able to freely say that and, and bring that evidence to the table and, you know, show some, some options between the choices. And then that's where the decision comes in and the trade-offs and like all that stuff that we just talked about. But you're saying they have to be able to come to the table and say, uh, government, <laughs> you know, here's here's what i found here's what the data shows yeah and the the other piece there is is a lot of times those government scientists will have a bit much better insight on how government works like who's actually making the decisions and what the essential knowledge gaps are to make change whereas academics and consultants unless they've had time in government uh you know it's a little bit murky for us because we're not always uh, inside the room for those uh more sensitive discussions Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. No, it makes, makes sense. Now for you, um, being a wildlife scientist in a university, um, how do you select like what you're researching? That's like pulling things out of a hat, like just whatever (laughs) you like, or does somebody come and say like, Hey, Adam, here's a million dollars. We need to know what's going on with uh, mule deer survival in the South Okanagan. How, how does that work? That is such a good question. Um, and, I, and I think it's important, you know, to share with the public how academics work. It's as a culture, you know, in my sort of job description, my union, those sorts of uh, policies and laws, I guess, um, we're encouraged to you know, it's what it's called academic freedom. You know, there's a there's a very strong culture within the academy to not prescribe what people do. Uh, so so I don't I, like. Uh, and I could give you the list of things we study: uh, elk, sheep, caribou, cougars, wolves, um, mule deer, hummingbirds. Hummingbirds. <laughs> I definitely am not a hummingbird researcher, but no one's. Anyways, that's another story. Um, it's charismatic microfauna. Um, yeah, no one, no one tells us what to do in that sense. Um, in, in a direct sense, like Adam, you signed up, you, you, we recruited you as a, you know, African mammal ecologist, and now you're studying fruit flies. Like no one was ever going to say that to me as far as I know. Um, so that's empowering. It means we can, we can do what we want. And I think, uh, within that, we then have a choice and of course, a responsibility to, to, I mean, I think an older fashioned way to, to put it kind of poorly, I guess, is we get to follow what's passionate for us. And I think the value to society is most academics and by pursuing their curiosities are going to contribute back something meaningful to society. And we don't always know what those discoveries are going to be. So there's an important role for funding um, what we call fundamental science, which is just curiosity driven. And in my world, that's just like community ecology, food web dynamics, predator-prey interactions, and those sorts of things. And, you know, sometimes chipmunks are the best model to understand that or 
fruit flies or a stickleback fish or something. Right. That doesn't remember. Yeah. No, go ahead. Well, uh, that stuff is great. And it's, it's almost candy for me. Like I just, I love, I love those theoretical questions, but uh, there's sort of a crisis happening around us. And that's the kind of stuff that I want to get at. And honestly, I'm also, there's a funding piece. So where can we support research and you can do some pretty cool fundamental research, you know, make a whole career off stuff. That's pretty darn cheap. I mean, in fact, you can just do it all on a computer with simulations and you don't have to get out of nature. Um, there's cheaper species to work on than large mammals. And when you're doing things like demography, you know, survival of adults and things like that, and you're looking at grizzly bears, it takes a lot of animals, a lot of expertise, a lot of captures to get decent numbers. So those animals are, are some of the worst to get the best science done from a fundamental perspective. We study it's it because expensive. it's expensive. It's hard to get enough numbers. You need to have you know, what we call degrees of freedom, you have to have an adequate sample size to answer some of these questions for survival, which is a huge, you know, key parameter for understanding the trajectory of a population, if it's going up or down, um, you need a lot of animals captured and monitored, and then they have to die. So a lot of things have to come together for, for those parameters. Yeah. And the length of time as well, like over years and years. Yep. Um, yeah. Now, what I was going to say about, you know, like you were saying, like you have academic freedom to like follow your curiosity and, and, you know, conduct your research and, you know, and that, that is a inherent value of science and sort of the objectivity of science and stuff and, and, and looking at things rather than being told. Um, when it comes to funding that, I remember Dr. Fred Bennell at UBC called that trust me science, you know, and it's, it was literally, you know, asking funding agencies to give you a million bucks to study this thing that you're interested in and you just want to see where it goes yeah. like start researching it and see where it takes you and he said you kind of got to be a pretty well-established good track record and stuff to get to trust trust me science with with big dollars it can be really exciting for a lot of people. I mean, especially, and, and productive. I mean, some of the work that goes behind uh, that fundamental work, it, you know, is the the best, you know, top awarded scientists in Canada do that kind of work. So it's well-respected. It can be well-respected in the field of science as a whole. Um, but for this, for the way we approach it, you know, I'm thinking about who do I get to work with? you know, and, and what opportunities, both from the students' perspective and also the communities that we serve. And so uh, that's a big part of it. You know, we get to choose who we get to work with. I remember asking somebody in an interview when I was looking for an academic job, why, why do you do this? Like, why do you think it's such a good job? This doesn't always look that easy. And he said, it's because I get to choose who I get to work with. And that's always sort of stuck with me um, inside and outside of, of the university. So yeah. Um, huh, cool. Now explain a little bit about this concept of like an academic chair. So, so kind of along the lines, like some, an outside agency or, or an outside funding source might say like, 
uh, in fact, I think I think Ducks Unlimited just did this not that long ago. Is they went to a scientist at the University of Saskatchewan or Manitoba and said, like, we're going to give you X amount of dollars per year. We want you to be in charge of this science program, but it's it's to answer these questions that we need to know about waterfowl habitat. And and so it has some parameters, um, but it's sort of like you're being hired um, to do science. Is is that is that common in the academic world? And there's different kinds of chairs. Um, the the general pattern among them is <clears throat> is there's a usually a research endowment that comes with the chair. So you're kind of guaranteed whatever thousands of dollars a year for research. That's not your salary. That might be to pay your students or it might be to buy GPS collars. So that's the common thing amongst them. Who's putting the chair forward would dictate the type of work that's being done. So I have a chair as well, but it's funded by the federal government. And I was hired under the idea that I would apply for this chair position. Fortunately, I got it. Uh, so I had a job. And uh, within that, I just wrote kind of the goals of my research program and the government funds it. They give money to UBC which helps support the research program and my students. That's one model. It's, I think, fairly open with respect to the type of work uh, I do, but I'm accountable to that funding body. That's called the Canada Research Chairs Program. Um, then the private sector version. Uh, yeah, there could be a, a colleague in my university has an industrial partnership chair. So he works with an industry, industry group to do research related to the impact of their industry on the environment. Um, uh, at University of Alberta, there's uh, Mark Boyce uh, has a ACA chair, Alberta Conservation Association chair, which to us is kind of analogous to the Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation. So you could, I think actually in BC, we have uh, an HCTF funded chair as well. Um, so within that, I think there's different models for how accountable those people are. Again, in the academic world, the default is we're not going to tell you what to do, which is kind of maddening at times. But with the chair model, if stakeholders are funding it, then you can envision some chairs are accountable to the, the donors of that chair. Um, the other idea is maybe chairs are recruiting people later in their career or the, the chair is recruiting someone later in their career. So they've established kind of what they're about. And it's unlikely that someone's going to make a hard right detour in their work. So if you hire somebody with a bit of a track record, the chances are they're going to keep doing work along those same lines. And so that might be a kind of a, a safer bet. Right. Okay. No, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, you know, I, I, I think that model, uh, again, one of the values you know, in an academic chair in, in a, in a university that's sort of, you know, leading a research program is again, that objectivity, there's that freedom to research things in a particular, uh, field and stuff, but then you're not, you know, bound or restricted by anything. You get to, you know, sort of, um, report out on what you find, you know, and, and, um, you, you don't have a vested interest in, what's done with the information. So it's just your, your product, as you called it, was, was the knowledge, what you learned. Right. Otherwise, you know, I have another colleague and mentor who said, if you know, who's funding the work, 
you know, if you look at the author line on the paper and you know who's funded it, uh, and you know what the you know, you know what the conclusions of that paper is going to be based on the funders and the, the author line, it's probably not actually science. Right. So it, it can go both both ways. If it's too directed, um, you know, people might view it with a bit of suspicion. Yeah. So I mean, that's just a straight up reality of the tug of war that's going on in wildlife management and the conservation field is that there are funding agencies out there that are very heavily value-based, um, you know, whatever, save the bear, save the wolf, um, you know, something like that. And they do research and it just always miraculously, you know, kind of lands on a predicted outcome of like, oh geez. Yeah. Like hunting's bad, <laughs> you know, it's like, so, um, yeah, there's there's a bit of a bit of that goes goes on as well. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about um, like the process of publishing and journals? You know, so um, the peer review process, the different types of journals, just how that system works. Like you do this research, but then the the bigger body of your peers have to go like thumbs up. That's good stuff. Yeah. So maybe I could just. Uh, as a back story to that process, Mark, it's what, uh, you know, I said we have academic freedom, but we're still accountable. So we still have to, to show something to somebody for what we're doing with our time. And your average professor will have a breakdown of 40% teaching, 40% research, and 20% service. Service is usually sitting on committees with the university about, you know, sustainability or latest like curriculum development or Sometimes it's seen as a service outside of the community as well. Teaching is teaching classes and then research. And research means usually grad students and is um, sort of measured through papers and grants. Both papers and grants typically are peer reviewed. So the paper piece is we need to show that we can publish papers. It's not enough to write a report. It's not enough to just have a student finish. Uh, you got to show that you can actually complete a, a, a paper. And so you talk about a lot about on your shows, you talk about recent studies and usually those are finished peer reviewed papers. So it starts, uh, I guess there's a lot of, there's a few different kinds. The big picture is there's sort of empirical studies. So studies where we're measuring things or, you know, tracking, doing experiments in the field or in, you know, in a computer environment or in a lab. There's other types of papers that are more opinion, uh, essays like misplaced conservation. Yep. The one that we talked about last year was an essay where we're arguing about the way things are and someone could easily just come back and say, no, it's not right. It's, it's, uh, it's our opinion, but it's informed by stuff that's going on in the world. Um, the empirical stuff is a lot harder to, to refute in that way. You may have a terrible study design, so they still get challenged, but no one typically is like, if you measure the weight of a grizzly bear, no one's saying, well, actually, no, it wasn't 200 pounds. It was 190 pounds. That's not part of the discussion. So then within that, we, you know, assemble the study. Uh, there's the co-authors that go on it. People have different roles as co-authors. Usually the lead author is a graduate student. Usually the last author in our field is the supervisor of that student. And then we would have collaborators in between. 
Sometimes it's, they're listed by alphabetical order. Sometimes they're order of contribution. It's kind of up to the group. Sometimes it's someone who's contributed money. Sometimes it's someone that, you know, did, did some study 10 years ago and they're sharing their data with you. So there's lots of reasons why people get on papers. Um, then we write it up, submit it to a journal. It's in there for a few weeks. Sometimes it gets rejected right away. We call that desk rejected. So it doesn't really get out of the gates. It's just killed. It's not even good enough for the journal to think about further. Um, those are kind of slightly painful, but it gets it over with quickly. <laughs> Uh, then the other process is it goes out to reviewers and there's a person called an editor who chooses the reviewers. They look at it, give some comments like they didn't cite my paper or this, this sentence is confusing or I don't understand this analysis. It's inconsistent with how we usually do this type of thing. And then the authors go, yeah, that's a good point. We, how do we miss that? And we try to clean it up as best we can, you know, or we say, actually the reviewers, out to lunch, which usually, it usually doesn't go very well, but, um, and then we send it back and, and then if the comments from the reviewers are really bad in the first go, then that's the end of that journal and we have to go somewhere else. Um, but usually where we try to get better at this, uh, you know, we get a chance to revise it and then it might go back to those reviewers again. They have a look at it and go, oh, yeah, that's person kind of checked the boxes for what I was looking for. Thank you. And that's it. Then it goes to, to the journal for copy editing, like making sure your I's are dotted, T's are crossed. And then it's published. And then guess what? We have to pay. So the the authors usually have to pay to get that journal or to get that article published. If you go on as a uh, someone without a subscription and you, you find a link to a, a study, uh, to a peer-reviewed paper, and it says, click here, pay $45 and get access to this paper for three weeks or something. We don't see any of that money. We've paid our money to publish a journal. We don't get paid from the journals to, to publish the papers. So that's something that people struggle with. <laughs> you can imagine. Part of the business. Because the reviewers, yeah, the reviewers are contributing their free time. The editors are contributing their free time. Or not free time, but they're contributing their time. Uh, they're not getting paid for it usually uh, by the journal. And, and then we have to pay at the end of it as well. So. Um, and then hopefully, you know, there's a trend now, especially with the Canadian federally funded science to make sure that those articles are open access, which means you don't need a subscription to that journal to access that paper. But if you do find a paper you like, you can always ask the author and they're happy to send it. They're usually more than thrilled to send the paper to somebody and know that someone other than their mom is interested in their study. <laughs> now, the people that are reviewing um, your paper, like your research, your, your study, they're other scientists, right? Yeah. That's the peer reviewed pieces, um, is whether it's the, it's the, uh, funding application or if, if it's the paper, it's, uh, you know, there's a database of people that have done similar things or we know them. We try not to have a conflict of interest. So it's not like a buddy buddy system, although there are rackets out there that have been busted for, having these uh, peer reviewed rings, you know, like these cartels. <laughs> Anyways, um, you know, we're, we're more accountable than that. And, um, and I've seen some pretty bad reviews where people know, like it's, it is their buddy and they're like, why are they shoveling me this BS? I don't want to deal with this. And so they'll get, I think a lot of people have no problem if their buddy is applying, is, is sending them crap to tell them it's crap. 
And so that's reassuring to me. Um, of course, there's tones you can use, right? There's, I, I don't think most people would appreciate it being phrased that way. Uh, so, you know, there's a constructive way of uh, doing these reviews. Um, but most times we don't know who is reviewing. Most of the time it's uh, single blind, which means the reviewer knows who the author is, but the author doesn't know who the reviewer is. Okay. Which is kind of weird. There's some more other journals that have double blind, but you can usually guess sometimes because often authors will cite themselves a fair bit and you'll see, oh, uh, this person keeps citing Ford at all all these Ford papers, it's probably Adam. And and I don't like Adam, so. And then, yeah, like, <laughs> well, that guy's mustache. We're not gonna yeah. pass this one. Did you calibrate that scale that you used to weigh the grizzly bear and said it was 200 right. pounds? Huh? Prove it. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. I reject your paper. <laughs> I reject yeah. you as a person. Um, well, that's the that's the tricky part is you, that's kind of how it feels sometimes. It's like, actually, my soul's crushed. But after you know a handful of these things you're like actually it's not about me it's just the work but in the beginning it's tough to get those rejections you're a great person your work shit though that's that's <laughs> that's, that's, that's where you want to get to in life you want <laughs> right yeah. yeah when you get there you know you've you've made it in whatever field you're in um yeah so i mean that whole process other than kind of the thing around having to pay, you know, people like me having to pay to get a paper to, to be able to do, you know, learn, learn from it or something like that, like that, that in the truest sense, that system is like the checks and balances in science to make sure that when something goes out and saying, here's what we found in the moose study, it's been peer reviewed. Other experts have looked over it and made you fix some stuff that you missed and the scientific community itself or science is saying like this was done properly and the conclusions and recommendations that fall out of it are are valid like you can like trust those kind of kind of thing like that that's is that is that a fair way to sort of put it i think that's the that's the idea and the ideal and the reality is people are imperfect. So editors miss things, reviewers miss things. We're usually only looking at two to three reviewers per paper. Um, we do suggest usually which reviewers may be worth looking at. So they have the subject matter expertise that there is no apparent conflict of interest. And you can also suggest reviewers that you don't want to have look at it. So within that, you can imagine people getting into clicks or some kind of comfort bubble of, you know, you kind of know that this thing's going to get published. So I feel like there's, there's a couple, uh, there's a couple places where it falls apart. Um, not the whole system of science, but there's a couple, yeah, just like where a bit of water gets into the hull, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, but again, it's one of those, I guess the argument is, well, what else are we going to do? I mean, it's, it is one of the better approaches to being accountable. How else do we do that while preserving this sense of academic freedom? Um, and I've been on papers where the comments are very poor. Uh, I've, yeah, I'm under my first appeal right now as, a, as an author and it's, I don't know where it's going. I haven't heard anything back from the journal. I've been, as a reviewer, I've seen stuff I've reviewed 
get published with the comments that um, that I suggested totally disregarded. So it went through and, and the author may, maybe said, I'm not doing this for whatever reason. And the editor's like, okay. Hmm. So, okay. But, but these are usually around studies that are not like, what's the right dose of Pfizer vaccine before you, you know, yeah. it's, it's usually a little less critical than that. And then what people are like the more rigorous approach now is if we do a bunch of work on some of the similar things, people come up with a meta-analysis. And this is where med medical science is quite advanced. Um, so with these, say, the vaccine trials that are happening, it's not just one study. It's several studies that people are looking at where they say, okay, there's a tendency for a signal to be whatever the, the second dose is okay after whatever, two months or whatever it is. Um, that, that's not from a single study. So okay. we get more confidence the more we do this. So the meta study is where somebody's research is actually a whole bunch of other people's research, and they're they're looking at at all the other research as a bigger snapshot of a picture or a question, and it has more power and more information to glean glean something at. Right. Yeah. Okay. And I think you you know you had uh, Rob Soray on. A while ago, and uh, he had this great paper in PNAS in 2019 about the different approaches people are taking to uh, caribou management. And it's not that's not really a, a meta analysis per se, but it was rolling up a bunch of individual studies into one paper, and that gave us a lot more confidence about you know what's actually going on because there's a lot of noise uh, in some of these individual studies, yeah. and that's a great example of where we need to synthesize across a lot of different uh, uh, places and, and times. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's one of the the um, approaches in science, right? Is people are studying these smaller things individually, different places, different times, different people are doing it, and this 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 library of studies on caribou are building up to the point where somebody's like, hey, let's go back and look at what everybody's looked at for the last twenty years, because nobody's like pulled it all together and gone wow, look at what we found across all these studies. And then that kind of like leapfrogs everybody's understanding of, you know, caribou populations or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. From what I understand, the medical field is very good at that because there's so much research done on this stuff that like, you know, you could literally be like doing a study that's looking at 500 or more other studies on exactly the same, same thing. So, um, yeah, cool. Um, maybe while we're just kind of on the topic a little bit of scientific papers, we kind of talked a little bit about the process of how, how they get, uh, out there for people to use. And that's one of the things that wildlife managers do in their job is they're like, okay, I got to manage this mule deer. So they're going to go out and dig through the literature and look for relevant mule deer studies and see what they can learn from it to, to, you know, sort of add to their, their management you know, programs or whatever. And I think um, hunters and people, I think in the conservation field might be some of the best read people when it comes to scientific literature. Like they're just like, they want to come to the table and like, you know, argue points or something like that from papers that they've read. It, like, I don't know if like, you know, fitness coaches and stuff do the same thing. Maybe, maybe they do or whatever, but I know... Man, I just find that um, 
hunters and conservationists and, and stuff, they read a lot of papers and I encourage that because it's, it's a great way, you know, to open up your mind and learn new things, but they're not the easiest things in the world to read, like an actual journal paper. Um, cause they're not quite written for, you know, like the average person, but maybe provide some pointers if somebody does say like, Hey, I'm on this committee in Williams Lake about mule deer management. And I want to read some mule deer papers and talk intelligently about mule deer science. Like how would, how would somebody approach reading that paper? That's a great, uh, great question. I remember as a student, um, trying, you know, as a science student, as a youngster, trying to read these things. And, and it took me years of working at it before I could kind of get through a whole one without taking a break and, you know, getting cold sweats and understanding <laughs> what they're talking about. Cause there's a very specific type of language and terminology that's tailored towards other scientists. It's not outward looking in that sense. Um, and I do, and honestly don't think it should be those there has to be a place for that kind of knowledge exchange. Um, there are places that do a great job of distilling the literature and you're one of those, Mark, I appreciate how you unpack these, uh, studies for your listeners. And I, I learned something when I listened to your show about papers that I didn't, you know, wouldn't, have th wouldn't have thought of in that particular way. Uh, there's groups like the wildlife society yep. that I think, you know, have sort of weekly, you know, here's what's going on. Um, there's Canadian ones and, and the, the national or international society that kind of does a great job of catching us up on the latest in a, a paragraph, you know, which is usually enough to kind of get a sense of what's going on. Um, I think the authors of papers have to do a better job of sharing. So again, a lot of colleagues will say that the paper is just the start of, of sharing your knowledge. You have to do a whole lot more. And the way we share knowledge depends on who we're sharing it with. Um, there's a lot of blogs. We try to tweet stuff in our group, uh, but there's, there's blogs, uh, different, you know, venues that, uh, again, vary in their, the technicality of their language. So, uh, I think it's out there. Um, and then I would, I guess I would kind of lean on the, the, you know, people that span the boundary like you, Mark, and people in the organizations around BC, the BHAs, the BCWFs and whatnot to try to, to distill that information um, to support uh, public access or, or more general access to uh, the scientific literature. So, you know, in an ideal world, you know, those groups would have staff scientists that can help. And the better funded organizations in the U.S. do, you know, do have staff scientists that can kind of be a go-between between the, the fundamental research and what their members are looking for and communicating that the their research out in plain language yeah so important yeah so like a scientific paper itself this is what i found anyways like structure wise like if you know listeners can remember from back in high school whatever where you know your science class it's like you've got the your finished science papers got the abstract which if you just want to think of it as like the summary um, some yeah. scientists write really good summaries where it's sort of like, that's it. Don't need to dig in anymore. Um, cause they, you know, explained what the research was, uh, how they did it, what they found and what it means for, for management. And 
So if sometimes if you just read the abstract of a scientific paper, you can glean a lot of probably all the average person needs to know about it. And then inside that is sort of like, you know, the background, the introduction, like, why did I do this paper? And it's because all these other people found these other things and it made me think about X. Um, that can be valuable. Then it's like the whole um, methodology section. Like, how did you do the study? You know, I set a camera trap up on a grid system. I checked it every two days, blah, 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 blah. I find that quite boring. Um, and, and then at the end, it says, then this is what I found. Here's the numbers. No judgment. Uh, just plain outright, like, here's, here's the numbers. And then sort of the discussion section is where the scientist gets, gets to then sort of say, okay, this is kind of what I think my study was showing. And, and they get to interpret what their study said. And then a lot of times it's like, and here's how I think you should use it and make some changes to force practices or something like that. And I, I've always sort of maintained like as a lay person, if you focus on knowing kind of like read the abstract and you'll get the high level picture and then sometimes skip to the end and just and read that discussion like what the scientists actually think because they'll dig into it a little little bit more um and then what they think should be done with that information and i always thought that was probably the most valuable things the average person could do and skip skip all of the methodology and statistics stuff in in the middle because you'll get you'll get lost there but i do anyways yeah that's a great uh, that's a great one over of how to how to do it uh the abstract usually has most of it um the title itself tells you often the main point the intro is can be pretty vague and um you might if you're talking about caribou you might have to talk talk about squirrels or something to make it relevant if if it's a topic that covers a lot of species the last paragraph of the intro is usually here's what we're going to do in this study, um, okay. the results, I mean, if you want to know how many moose were in the study, and, and this is an important point for science literacy is, you know, a study with 10 moose or, or 10 hundred moose are going to be very different in the, in the quality of the science that come out of that, right? Like they're not all the same just because it's a paper. Um, okay. then you Good move point. through the results. Uh, my, I'm sort of a visual learner and, and so it's almost like I'm a kid when I get a, a new chapter book, you know, and I like go straight to looking for the pictures. Like I kind of look for the pictures right away. Cause usually that's the part that this, the authors think is the most important piece to share. So I go, I look for the figures and, and if there's something interesting, I'll kind of go from there. Right. Like, but I think you're right. Up. Yeah. Like here's a graph of the moose population for the Chilcotin region for the, over yeah. the last 10 it, years. And you're like, Oh, it's going up it's or it's going down. Going I just, up or it's going down. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of what I go to, but those figures are still, there's a lot of technical, um, you know, familiarity you would want to have for some of them. It's not intuitive for everybody and it's easy for scientists. You, you know, see it in conferences all the time. People don't, you know, they put up a figure, you know, they've been working on it for two years and, and they don't even explain what that figure is. Like what's, what are the units on the X axis years, you know, hectares, 
we have no idea what's on the y axis what is you know and for a lot of people what is the x and y axis yeah. it's like the vertical the horizontal you know so when we you know our group gets out there into the community we you know, we do try to stress that before they head out and it's a lot of practice cuz it's it's changing how we uh, how we talk but um anyways the other part of the paper i would say is that first paragraph of the discussion is usually the most important paragraph of the paper is the way we write them so that's where the authors say hey we were looking for this and here's what we found here's why we think it matters but you usually get there pretty quickly in that first paragraph of the discussion okay, okay. that's good to know good to know too um yeah the less the less you have to read the, the better like where's the where's the the key parts huh well that's good and then the other part that we're we're doing, I guess, and you'll see in a lot of places is a visual abstract or, you know, it's called an infographic as well. And um, we see that as just the same as those publishing fees. Like it's, you know, I already published, why do I have to pay more? But it's it's so handy to share the vis that visual abstract and to get it done professionally. So we usually commission uh, somebody. So it's not like me and Microsoft Paint drawing some terrible pictures of a moose or something, but it's professionally done and that's way easier for people to share. It's like a one page policy brief, which is something else we could talk about. Um, and it just sort of gets it out there as a conversation starter. If people want more information, if they want the technical piece, here's the paper, but you know, the main findings, the main ideas in that infographic and it's easy, easily digestible. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Yeah. I know in, infographics have really, really caught on in the last few years and they are, they are super, super informative, super powerful. So I know one of the uh, things, you know, sort of other points about if you're reading scientific papers that I would um, recommend is to also be very clear on what the scientist's main objective of the research study was. So you know what they were actually trying to come up with, because sometimes there's this a lot of stuff around that that people can then take as the main point of the paper and and then probably go somewhere with it that they shouldn't. The classic example, and I saw this happen at one of the Caribou conferences, um, community conferences a few years ago, is there was a study done in Alaska where they put um, those GoPro cams or whatever on the collars on the Alaskan brown bears that hangs under their chin. So you got to like watch them do their thing. And then when they killed a calf animal and they got the, the video back, then they would go through and flailing legs and stuff like that. They'd go, oh, that was a caribou. And then it's like, you know, a caribou calf, caribou calf, caribou, moose calf, moose calf. Like, and they've added up, um, you know, how many a week, you know, this, this sort of stuff. And in this study, they said uh, one of the grizzly bears had killed um, four times what all of the previous studies had recorded was an average rate of young calf, moose, and caribou that Alaskan brown bears were reported to have killed. Like it would be something, you know, like, uh, you know, one a week or something like that. And this one bear was killing like 10 a week. And, and people were like, see, 
grizzly bears are way more significant predators of um, you know calf moose than ever thought. They're a problem. We gotta we gotta knock their population back. Blah blah blah. And like one person actually did that in the conference, right? And I'm like, actually, that paper was a study to see if they could use the cameras to actually classify what species of calf the Anna the bear was killing. And this one bear, they knew that bear was better than all the other bears in this geographic area at killing calves first thing in the springtime. So they caught him and they put this camera on it going, well, if we're going to find out if we can figure out what he's killing, let's get, let's get Daryl over there. Cause like he kills a lot per week, like 10 times more than everybody else. And so I kind of had to back this biologist up and say like, dude, that was sort of, that wasn't the purpose of the paper. The purpose was to see how good these cameras would work. And they, they, they biased those results by selecting that particular bear. So he was kind of, so anyway, they just kind of, you know, you got to know those things too, so that you're not, you're not communicating something where the scientists themselves would go, uh, hang on a second. That's not actually what that paper was about. So. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes back to that, you know, discussion we had last year about misinformation and how easily it spreads. Because what's interesting about that story is that uh, not what species the bear is eating, but how that it this number is way off the charts. And so that's kind of what people's minds gravitate to or something. I mean, there's a whole psychology to how this information gets spread, but the further away it gets from the source, like a game of telephone when you're a kid. <laughs> yeah. The the story kind of loses its original meaning, and it it has its own life to it, and I think that's a really important thing. Uh, like especially scientists engaging in social media, you know, read read the paper. And I'm you know I'm working on this myself, but just make sure that we're not sharing headlines around like bears eat ten times more calves than we ever thought. And then you know, in the that, paper, try to thing. try to explain that it was about testing GoPros on bears, and everybody's right. like whatever, shut up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the other, I mean, the flip side of that is people can publish a paper and then once they get the mic in front of their mouth from a media interview or whatever, they can talk about whatever they want, really. So it may not have to be, so the peer review process may have that rigor that we're talking about. But when the scientist goes to speak to the community on behalf of that paper, the paper opened the door, got the, the interview with CBC or whatever, now they can kind of open the floodgates and, and it becomes a lot more conjecture, a lot more opinion. It's not peer reviewed, but they're there because they're a credible sort of expert. And that's where it does get a little blurry, right? Especially for conservation scientists who are advocating for change within the confines of this peer reviewed uh, sort of quasi objective system called science. Yeah. And then of course you guys also struggle with what, the mainstream media does with your papers and how they portray that and what they pick out of it and make up their own headlines and stuff. And that's pretty hard to walk back uh, once that gets out to the general masses to try to like correct, you know, uh, um, emphasizing something that wasn't what your message was. So. And I would say we we informally, or maybe some folks more formally, keep track of who's easier to talk to about some of these things. You know, I think if you get burned once, it's easy not to go back. And usually the scientists, you know, it's usually to their detriment that their science isn't being covered. 
But if it's not being covered in the right way, who's got time for it when there's so many good journalists out there that's that are going to do it right? And the key is usually to, for them to capture the nuance, right? To capture the, well, the sometimes or the, you know, this thing about hummingbirds you mentioned. Uh, this The CBC article I thought was pretty good. They said, you know, it's one of this group of species that includes others and um, some other takes on that have been, you know, the hummingbirds the best in BC to save all the other species. And that's not what the study showed. Yeah. That, that was, that was the headlines is uh, uh, I, th- I think I'd actually saw that today in a story or yesterday. It was like Dr. Adam Ford, UBC um, hummingbirds are a good keystone indicator species of the health of an entire ecosystem. And I remember that, that one, that discussion floated around, I think about a year ago and Dr. Lamb, who right. studies grizzly bears, was like, hey, wait a second. <laughs> grizzly bears are keystone. <laughs> like, no, hummingbirds yeah. are. But So you're saying yeah. that was kind of a, something the, the, the media picked up and the narrative they created? Well, I thought, I thought some did a great job. I'll, yeah, I thought some did a great job of capturing the, the nuance there. Okay. The CBC one did, oh, did a good job. Good, but it's nice. I mean, it's a good. That's the the point of that story too. That's kind of interesting. Is you know we you know we did test whether we should be you know focused on bears and deer and all that stuff and and uh, those are important, which is great. But so are some other things, and I think that's just I'm really happy with that result to be honest. So that's kind of how I see the world. <laughs> yeah, and just I think just the last piece of advice I sort of pass on, like for for hunter conservationists, I guess that are you know trying to learn from scientific papers. And this is something that um, Jesse Zeman from BC Wildlife Federation said, um, if you're reading scientific papers, don't worry too much about knowing how the research was conducted. Just understand what it means for management or conservation. So if you're reading mule deer research papers, try to walk away from it to say, what does this mean for managing mule deer habitat in the Williams Lake area? Or what is this saying for managing black-tailed deer, um, you know, hunting regulations on Vancouver Island or something like that? And, and, and I always thought that was a really good way is read through a paper and just walk away from it and say, what does this mean for the management of that species? And, and not so much about um, trying to be a critic or understand, you know, h- how they got to that, but just pick up and, and, try to be a champion of moving forward and echoing the voice of the, of the scientists. So now with that kind of, that's a segue into, I think a point that you wanted to talk about and communicate to listeners was some, some ideas and advice or some thoughts around um, water channels for science um, to drive change in conservation and, and wildlife management and, and where are they not? Yeah, Un- I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess we, we, I thought we just touched on this a bit already. And it's just the idea that, you know, maybe science shouldn't be the one making the decision. So let's not, let's not, um, you know, we've been in some public presentations on say the mule deer project and people are looking at us to make a decision or make change. Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Like, we're not actually the managers, you know, we're working with managers and if we don't, our work isn't going to be relevant. It's not going to be seen as credible. So of course, I mean, they're also good, good people, but like what, that's why we do that. And and it's walking again, walking this line between who's funding your work. Well, you know, um, 
the funders can shape your work and that's where it gets a little tricky, right? That's the gray area. But if you're trying to do work to change things and you don't have the people who are, who you're trying to change on board from the early days, it's going to be a lot easier for them to shut you out. So that's why, you know, the whole big tent conservation idea has science in there along with the different, you know, people in the community that uh, are affected by these decisions. Um, so, I, you know, at the provincial level, like I'd like to see science, wildlife science specifically, take a bigger role. I mean, this might be a bit controversial, but, you know, the whole uh, public health emergency that we've been under for the last year, I think, is an interesting case study for how science and politics work together or don't. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot to learn from there either way, however you come out on those things. And what can what lessons can we learn from that process? Uh, for wildlife science, uh, is there a you know is there someone with the credibility with the decision making power like uh, Bonnie Henry that we could have for wildlife science? Is that something that this province could ever support, or um, a, a technical team that would uh, provide science at a very high level uh, to the ministers to the to the premier? Um, you can see something like that happening. Um, we're you know ages behind where some of the U.S. federally funded research, wildlife research has gone with uh, co-op models. Um, there's a, you know, there's a federal program to fund and place managers, basically research people in universities. So down the hall for me would be, say, Garth Mowat, right? And, and he doesn't have to teach, but he can do, he can supervise students and is embedded in the research community. I think that would be a really interesting model to explore for BC as well. Yeah. And, but at the same time, he's still a full-time employed wildlife manager for the province. But yeah, that that's exactly. the co-op model from the U.S. So um, yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 pretty cool. You know, I, I hear what you're saying. I really like that idea, and I think um, I remember seeing this about a year ago. This concept was, I think it was not really a meme, but it was maybe a meme kind of type picture that was um, this this academic from UBC, from the Okanagan campus, I think put it on their Twitter feed um, to make a point where, and it was Dr. Bonnie Henry at a press conference um, speaking into the microphone to the press. And behind her was the minister. And it was basically like, there's science talking to the press and policy behind the science backing it up with the policy right and uh i i think that's kind of what what um you you must have saw that person that posted that and <laughs> and kind of was um sort of what advocating kind of the same thing for wildlife management right like like science is is communicating what it knows about this thing and then policy is taking that under advisement and and backing it up with with policy and some of those trade-off decisions I'm a little blushed, Mark. I think I know what you're talking about. And I think that person's learned a lot in the last year about how the world works. So that's a, that's a nice idea. I do think there's something about those two archetypes, a, a politician and a scientist working together to solve problems. I think there's something there that uh, appeals to me and I think is missing. Uh, I don't know if that's the exact model we want, 
Um, but uh, I, I think there's something there because I, you know, that's a lot of pressure to put on one person, and and therefore, you know, that's where I would fear that there, like, how do you maintain the independence? I mean, and and you know this province and and how it works better than I do. Like, what's the role of the chief forester? I don't really know some of these internal workings or even how how much independence someone like Bonnie Henry has from the political sphere. Doesn't seem like as much as a lot of people would like. Um, so that's something where, and maybe it's not one or the other, but getting a high level trusted group or person who's independent, who's an independent broker of knowledge for these decisions, I think is something that would um, lend greater credibility to the, the decision-making process. And it's almost like a real-time auditor general, like the auditor general yeah. does some great work unpacking these really complicated issues. Right. But it's two years later, they're few and few and far between. <laughs> and like they need, we need decisions kind of a little bit quicker. And so, but I think that when the auditor general has a report, we all go, yep. Like that's kind of the truth. Like that. I don't think there's much debate over the, the, information that goes into that report and so uh, i find that uh, you know it's it's possible it's definitely possible yeah i think what i guess what i'm kind of getting at it is i think when it comes to conservation or wildlife management and you know the reliance on science and evidence to inform policy i feel that the public deserves to know and hear what that science is first, what the trade-offs of A, B, and C are, what the considerations are. Um, I guess in advance of the policy decision or statement so that the public can go, I've heard from the scientists, they told me about the three various options, the pros and cons and benefits and trade-offs and risks and uncertainties of each one that the decision makers had to weigh out and say this is the policy and then their rationale statement and then the public gets to go okay i mean that seems like a pretty fair um decision maybe i don't like the policy but i i see what they had to work with the truths that you know the best knowledge to to make that decision but if the public doesn't know you know what that is and then policies are just unleashed and they don't you know know all those those um closed door discussions and trade-offs that were made then that creates you know people give it the sniff test and go i don't know you know it's like and then and then that's when mistrust and then people don't stand behind that policy decision so i like that model of sort of full disclosure of science ahead of these decisions yeah I, I think that's an interesting point mark I, what happens when it's the, the sort of counterfactual i guess in the absence of this sort of transparency and and um yeah objectivity that is at least part of the discussion um people create their own story and they fill in that conversation behind closed doors and people have a, a fantastic imagination for coming up with what the what the narrative is and it turns into a big conspiracy and uh maybe it's there's some truth to it um it certainly seems like it contributes to a lot of cynicism i don't think that's helpful and i just overall think we can do better i mean it's 2021 we i think we have the tools to do this 
and we have the people to do it properly. And I, yeah, I'm kind of optimistic that the conversation's headed in this direction for BC. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Good. Good. I think there's a good community of practice here. Uh, you, t you bring these people onto the show and, um, you know, they're, there's a good, uh, you know, group of academics and non-academics and government folks uh, in this province that I think see the value in science and um, yeah, just happy to be working here now and and not uh, yeah, like not 15 years ago or whatever when it was a lot. There was a lot of cutbacks. Yeah, yeah. Now, I guess jumping jumping forward a little bit from that segue. Um, the together for wildlife strategy program um, is kind of like in full swing, I guess, in the province now. Um, and you are one of, is it 18 people that's on the advisory board? Um, so yes, the minister's wildlife advisory yeah, council. Council. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So maybe. Tell us a little bit about what's uh, what what you're seeing in that process, and uh, I think one of the exciting things there is is you know it was created with the last government before the election, and it was continued through. So we continued to meet when there was no government, when it hadn't been formed yet. We had no minister, so we still kind of try to keep keep it moving forward. And there's a group of very committed people that want to see change. Uh, that believe in reconciliation, that believe in science, that believe in people coming together. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of diverse perspectives in the room that, um, you know, we're, we're working together and have terms of references that cover, you know, the respectful tone that we want to have. And uh, I think it's a, it's an incredible opportunity for the province to see change. Like I, I think we're, I'm cautiously optimistic. I, I know that in the past, I've been involved in processes where it seems like government brings you in and, and writes down what you have to say, mm -hmm. and then you leave, and then that's kind of the end of it. They're going to do what they're going to do anyways. And I don't know, but I'm just not, it's just too new to say where this is headed, but I feel like uh, I feel like there's a lot of uh, reasons to be optimistic within it. And yeah, they were making good progress. There's different working groups so people can go on and see the minutes now, which were just uh, published today. So you can see what we've been up to. Um, the big thing that I'm seeing is this, uh, you know, reconciliation piece. So there's a, an interaction with uh, another committee called the First Nations Wildlife and Habitat Forum. And there's members from, from that forum that are participating in the discussions of the council. The council's co-chaired by Indigenous and non-Indigenous leadership, which is great. Uh, so that part is very strong. Um, there's working groups set up around funding, around governance and setting objectives and science and research. And that's uh, where I fit in. And I'm super excited to, um, you know, support that group and dreaming big about what we can do for wildlife science in this province right now. So is it kind of fair to say like everybody is looking at how can we make the system in British Columbia of biodiversity conservation where wildlife management and game management fits into that um, better? Like, is this really like a 
um, what's those those lean management type things in business, right? Where you, you where you stop and you look at your process and it's like, what's working, what's not, where's your problems, um, you know, where's your value, what are your outputs, um, what's totally not failing and, you know, what can we do to make this whole system more lean, more effective, more cost, you know, better bang for the buck, all that kind of stuff. Is that, is that kind of what the Together for Wildlife strategy is? Is this kind of like, it's a potentially like a big shift in conservation management in the province, the way it's approached? I think there's the potential. Okay. I think there's the potential. I mean, you, I'm sure you, you've you seen the, the engagement piece over the last couple of years and how that's translated into the strategy and the goals and, and actions within that strategy. Um, they're pretty high level, but there's ideas around, you know, regional bodies. And we're learning as a council that there's other regional processes in the province and it's like, how do these all thing, all these things fit together? And you look at the, that ministry itself, forest lands, natural resource operations and rural development. There's within that long acronym, uh, there's the sub sort of groups within the ministry and they're not necessarily on the same page, right? There's competing interests within the same ministry, within the same, you know, office. So wildlife you know, management like, and forestry are in the same ministry. And, <laughs> and the range people and like it goes on and on and so some people yeah want to burn things down some people want to stop things from burning some people want to cut it down like it just goes on and on and then yeah bring in moe bring in transportation um and it gets pretty complex so wildlife is only within the flinroar piece of that but we're trying to learn what's the whole policy landscape so we're trying to get caught up on that but i guess one thing about about the council itself is it's not government right it's uh it's the people in there are independent of government. Um, so there's just community leaders and um, we're not, uh, you know, I guess it's a, it's an independent voice. They're not really stakeholders. They're not representing groups in that way. But I think those sorts of processes are something that we're hopefully gonna see at the more regional level where people can kind of sit down with a map and say, what do we wanna do with this piece of land as a group? Uh, we're kind of at a high level provincial wide scale in the same way that yeah there's some other groups in the province like Vitad and whatnot that you know about okay no that's that's interesting so the council so the council is its main role is going to be like advising or making recommendations for policy for to the government right to to, to i think it's to advise on implementing the together for life strategy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that the people that make up the council, like you said, they're not representing bodies of people in, in the province. They're they're You're all sort of selected to say like, Hey, this individual person um, is a good representative of the public. And, and so they're there to speak like, with their own mind as opposed to like a mandate of their organization. So that really reminds me of a jury actually, right? Like a, a, yeah. I, I was on a jury one time and the judge said the strength of the justice system in, in having a jury is you're selecting, if you're on trial, it's a group of your peers who use their gut and life experiences 
as the public to say, did you do something wrong or not? And, and it, to me, it feels a little, a little bit like that and that you're not stakeholder body representations. You're like a person off the street who's kind of got the gut check on, on these things. Right. I guess pretty close, except there's a pre-screening where, you know, do you give a rat's butt about uh, wildlife? I think that was a key requisite. So it's not totally a random selection from the population. Neither is a jury. I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. But there's like hundreds and hundreds of people. Yeah. Yeah. Both lawyers have eh? to agree on the person. If one doesn't like it, they just send you home. Yeah. <laughs> haven't been sent home. Well, I guess I haven't really left home, so I don't know what that says. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Well, that's um, that's exciting. I mean, that's that's good to hear um, that you um, you know, um, feel positive about what you've been involved in so far and and what you're seeing and stuff and and you know, being able to make a change and um, being involved in the science piece you know, for the, for the, uh, together for wildlife strategy. So that's, um, that's cool because yeah, I think there's a lot of history everywhere in the world of these things being put together and then five years, six years, 10 years down the road, they just kind of slowly <laughs> meld away to, to nothing. Right. And everybody forgets about it. So yeah, I mean, one of the one of the templates I'm learning from is this uh, IWIFER, um, Integrated Wildlife Forestry Research something. This thing that happened with Bunnell and others on Vancouver Island in the '90s. A lot of those scientists are still around, and Jan Doug Jens on the committee, and he's one of them. Um, there's a bunch, a bunch of them, and they're they've done some amazing work. And with our work going on in Vancouver Island, we you know come across those papers all the time. But it was this bringing together of industry, academics, and government to do that work, and talking to. I was like, well, why don't we still have that? Like, whatever happened? And it sounded like such a rare model for how to do this. This like adaptive management, science to policy bringing in the practitioners and the researchers together to, to solve problems. I mean, it's a great model and it was great. It was personality driven for one. So there was a, it was a less complicated regulatory landscape. So if you wanted to get something done, you had fewer people and hoops to jump through. So that seemed like one marker of success. Fewer bodies needed to be in the room to get stuff done. The other, um, I guess it, it just sort of dwindled because there was a change of government and uh, that program was cut and, the forest industry, I guess, out there became more fragmented, uh, more players, and they just sort of dropped it. And that's a bummer. I don't know what the alternative is, because unless you get the stuff into legislation, it's going to get, even then it's vulnerable, but it's less vulnerable than than policy. But I guess if, if there's enough goodwill at the table, some of these, some of these players are not going to change what, depending on the government typically. Um, so you look at Alberta's Biodiversity Monitoring Institute, and they've had lots of different governments and lots of swings in government policy with respect to research and science and, and funding. And they're still around and still doing great work and bringing together industry and uh, researchers from government and academia to, um, to do great work. So 
I think uh, I think there's models out there that we can learn from here in BC. Okay, that's 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 a really good point. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that as like people being aware that like that this council um, that you're on is is embedded enough it has enough arm's length that it can kind of stand the test of time of of changing governments every four years and i guess the value is, is these types of processes councils or the alberta biodiversity Mon monitoring institute like you're saying it needs to be in place doing its thing decade after decade after decade you know and and sure people are gonna you know change and come and go but the institution needs to be there to serve serve the policy makers and um that, yeah it's like the uh, important piece i would say people got to watch be eyes wide open that somebody doesn't decide that they want to take this thing and say okay i want this in my ministry now like people got to be aware for that and 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 be willing to fight and say no this thing has to be kept where it is away from Yeah, that's a great point, Mark. I'm thinking of like some of the commission, Fish and Wildlife Commission models in the states as, you know, some of their politically appointed in some, or a lot of cases or all cases, but there's something there about their, um, like a publicly represented body, but that they're independent of government a bit. And uh, maybe that's idealistic, but there's, there's something there, especially if you know the discussions in British Columbia about dedicated funding from hunting license revenue going back into fish and wildlife as being something that's been talked about a fair bit, but who's going to manage it, right? How's that, is government going to give up control over that revenue? And if, if they are, who's going to be in charge of distributing those funds? And that sets up this whole governance question that I think is pretty interesting, but you would want that sort of thing to, to sit outside of government. Um, to maintain the independence if that becomes the priority of, of the public. Right. Yeah, because the current model of the Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation that does take the, the smaller conservation surcharge off hunting license and tags, uh, it's outside of government, and but it gets its authority uh, under a section of the Wildlife Act. So it, it takes... It would take a uh, the the legislature sitting and both sides agreeing to amend the Wildlife Act to take um, that money away from that that outside foundation. So it it's pretty it's pretty protected. So mm -hmm. I I would I would suspect dedicating all license and tag fees wouldn't be quite that hard because especially unless people are talking about it going to somewhere different than other than, than the Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation. It's just, uh, but it still, it still would require an amendment of the Wildlife Act. And the, that apparently is like popular in Victoria is putting pins in your eyes um, is <laughs> as saying that we need to change legislation. That's right. decades worth of work. So, yeah. Um, no, that's good. And anything else you want people to know about together for wildlife? Uh, how how are the public gonna have like a say? Like if something starts happening, like 
are, th- are things going to be put out for public discussion? Are there going to be public discussion papers, um, processes that are come back to the council to say, because it's not a public consulting process, right? Is there pieces in there like that? How's that going to work? Maybe that's going to come through the, the regional processes. I okay. don't, you know, okay. don't know. Okay. Yeah. So when you say regional processes, what um, that is sort of like mini councils yes. at a regional level, um, like a South Okanagan council, a, a, a Peace Liard regional council um, that would be looking at these questions of funding, research needs, policy needs, um, these types of things, but just at the scope of a region of the province as, as you guys are looking provincially. Yeah, I believe that's that that's the sort of idea that they're talking about. And, okay. and, and it's to, yeah, just to focus it in more around the land itself and the, and the animals on it than this high level policy stuff, which can be a bit uh, nebulous, you know, because mm-hmm. it's hard not to, like, what do we do? And let's build an overpass, like where and which region does it go? And, you know, it gets, uh, it's it's not the right level to think about boots on the ground work where we are. I think that has to come at a little more focused uh, level where there's experts from that place and knowledge keepers from that place that can speak to those problems and the solutions. And hey, that's the other thing within this whole question about science that I'm having kind of a mid-career paradigm shift myself around this, which is we spend a lot of time talking about impacts, environmental impact assessment, you know, and what's the effect of X on Y. And we, we just constantly are in that world in the, in the conservation science bubble and kind of done with it, Mark. Like I'm kind of getting tired of it. I think what we need to do is how do we put it back together and just start, just start like that's the experiment. The experiment is not what's the impact. The experiment that should, we should be trying now is okay, we think fire is good for mule deer. Let's start finding places where we can burn at a scale where it's going to be good. Or we know that roads are bad for caribou. Which roads can we shut down to bring the species back from the brink? Like we kind of have a sense of what the impacts are now. It's been a long time of studying impacts. Let's do the experiment on restoration. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the applied adapted part of science. Um, I think that's what, uh, almost everybody in the conservation field and, um, you know, recreational users and hunters and stuff like the, the, like actually like doing things and, and, and trying to make a difference on, on the ground. And, uh, yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree. And, uh, I think it was, uh, JP Kimmons, the famous forest ecologist at UBC. Um, he, had a quote, I think it was in one of his ecology books. And he said, uh, it was something along the lines. It's like when it comes to science and conservation and, and resource management, he goes the it's sort of like the issue is not that we don't know what we should be doing. We know enough. We just need to start doing those things. Um, and, and I, I always was a, was a subscriber of that is like, there's only so much you can do. That's like you said, it's like, oh, look, you know, this road density causes this reduction in grizzly bear habitat. Oh, this amount of mining dust 
causes this change in fish egg survival. And it's like right. Jesse Zeman from the Federation said, it's just like where we're monitoring things as they disappear, but yeah. not doing the experiments to bring them back. And um, yeah, that uh, I, I could certainly see why you think that would be a big paradigm shift is like getting back to like, let's start um, turning the dials yes. and, and seeing where the needle changes. And you and I were on that call a few weeks ago on the update on the chronic wasting disease stuff from yeah. Alberta, British Columbia and Montana. Yeah. And so Alberta is doing this, like this huge modeling exercise where they've been, they've been watching the progression of CWD from Saskatchewan headed towards BC across uh, the province and like these little different epicenters and the species and uh, what the infection, you know, rates were and how it changed and the, you know, when the population actually like kind of like hit its low point and started to recover, like it, these beautiful colored models that are simulating this going across the landscape. And I'm thinking exactly what you're saying. It's like, great, start jumping into a bunch of those places and experimenting with different management regimes and then seeing how that changes changes the color of you know the polygons and stuff and like do some real stuff right so yeah and we see that we see that dark cloud coming our way and you know we i don't know that when we have great people working on this problem but i don't think they've got the mandate like we should be testing for example fences in the upper elk valley or something right or finding yeah. ways of of mitigating highway three so that we can get the species we want to get across that road and not the ones we don't or the um, unpopular idea of introduce more wolves to eat the deer that have chronic wasting disease. <laughs> <laughs> uh, those are real ones that are floating out there. I saw one the other day about introducing wolves into an eastern state to eat more deer so that less of them get hit on the highway. So Yeah, in Wisconsin. There's uh, quite an email thread with my colleagues yeah. and I right now about that paper. <laughs> um, yeah, that's one that we, uh, we were scratching our head about a little bit. But it's yeah, a nice yeah. idea. Uh, it's a it's a nice idea. But both. but these these are things what we're talking about is <clears throat> science sort of needs to shift to doing these these little experiments on the landscape. And somebody comes back and going like, "Holy crap, everybody! After a year of um, harvesting white-tailed deer under this regime, look how we changed the dial. Yeah. Look how we slowed the rate down. Uh, changed like whatever." And people are like, "Eureka!" Right those one those guys discovered it so. right yeah i mean we've learned a lot from say this uh, idaho experiment you know whether you are a, a you know a cougar hugger or not you know the this hurley paper from idaho did this amazing work on an experimental reduction of carnivores and it's a tough pill to swallow if you're a pro carnivore person but that study kind of changed the course and how they manage predators and if it showed that uh predator reduction was an effective way of growing mule deer, I'm sure they would be doing predator reduction. They're not because it was not an effective way of, of increasing the mule deer population. So sometimes you got to give some space, everybody, to kind of um, find out what the results are. And yeah, I'm looking right now at a, a, there's a study announced in Oregon, uh, in Elliott State Forest. It's the largest forestry experiment ever set up in the United States. It was just announced this week. It's super exciting. And I think this is the kind of scale that we need to be thinking about in BC. So take your white-tailed deer reduction example. We don't need to do that in every place all at the same time. 
why don't we roll it out in one WMU or better yet, replicate it in a few different regions, but not a whole bunch and just say, almost like the Columbia North Moose LEH hunt. Like there's a reason why that's happening and it was experimental and we're learning from it every year. And we can do that with silviculture. You know, what's the, what's the right pattern here to get, you know, fiber off the land, which is what uh, your rural economies are looking for and uh, maintain wild wildlife populations. I feel like we gotta be smart enough as humans to figure something like this out, like this out if we can put our minds to how do we work together to do it? And it might mean again, like let's choose 10 watersheds in each management unit for experimental, uh, you know, road closures and, and prescribed fires at scale. And we're going to measure things before and after and see if it's feasible. Like, like the 2019 Soroy et al. PNAS uh, Proceedings National Academy of Sciences paper, but that was haphazard. I mean, they, they did a great example of pulling together all the studies that were out there, but they never designed them to do that. Those were just kind of existing studies. And, and the brilliance in that approach is like, well, if we rolled out enough trials in enough places, we're going to get a pretty clear answer, but let's do it intentionally. Let's start from scratch with like a blank whiteboard. If we wanted to know what, uh, if we wanted to know the answer for an approach to wildlife restoration, you know, choose a handful of your key species. They're not going to be too many that people are really going to get behind. I think in this province, moose is going to be near the top of the list for indigenous and non-indigenous people. And, yeah. you know, what do we need to do to, to bring back moose populations in four or five different regions? And like, let's yep. start trying it with, with the community of researchers and scientists on board to measure things as we go. That's kind no, of that's a, that's a great message to get, uh, to get out to folks here, you know, to, to start getting behind, um, getting voices in, in the public and the community behind pushing for like, real-time science on the ground as we're doing management, turn management activities, enhancement activities, whatever conservation uh, efforts into scientific projects rather than just doing it and going, oh, hey, remember that thing over there where we enhanced the uh, the duck nesting habitat? I wonder how that ever turned out. Like right. It's like people, sh hunters should be standing up and saying, if you're going to do that, show us the science plan that's going to be attached to it, or we're going to put the brakes on this thing. You, you know, we got to start doing stuff and knowing, is this something that changes the dial or not? And we'll do the things that do and stop doing the stuff that's not. So yeah. I think that's a powerful thing that um, maybe the average person could get behind out there. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, right on. Well, we gotta we gotta get you to your uh, fly fishing seminar pretty here in a, in a few minutes. Um, thanks, man. Um, good good stuff. Digging into kind of like science and how it fits in, and a little bit of what's going on for the what the, together for wildlife strategy. You know, kind of coming back full circle to the beginning of uh, the episode where we kind of talked about how everybody's getting behind this message of like, we want science-based wildlife management. I mean, it's everybody. It's the people that are on the island that are calling for the moratorium on wolf hunting and trapping. They're saying we need to like have science-based wolf management and hunters are saying we need science-based wolf management, not emotion, right? And it's sort of like, it's like, okay, everybody, what does that mean? And um, if you haven't read Mark Manson's books, uh, I would suggest 
them. He's a best-selling author, lives in New York, and he has written the book, um, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, and <laughs> Everything's Fucked. And it's, it's, not, it's not what you think. Everything isn't fucked. I mean, it does seem like it is, um, but it's actually counterintuitive to, to what... Um, to what to what he's um, uh, the title of his book is, but in in the second book, um, everything's fucked. He talks about religions and the different religions that exist out there, and how you could actually go about creating a religion. And he said, if you're going to create the ultimate religion that has the best chance of serving people the value God, the God, the thing that you value the most. So it's like, you know, there's a religion around wolf preservation and the value God is the wolf. Um, they're not worried about caribou. The God is the wolf. You know, like, I think you could see what I'm getting at here. He said is create your value God around evidence. Hmm. That's the thing that everybody worships and wants more than anything is evidence. And to me, that's, if you want to stand behind the narrative of science-based wildlife management, that needs to be everybody's value God. Where's the evidence? Where's the facts? What is the information saying? Then we'll bring our different values to the table, have a discussion and try to find the middle ground and a path forward to manage a public resource. But to me, everybody needs to come back to what's What's the thing that we're praying to and, and who are we making sacrifices to? It's for scientific evidence. So plus you should read the books cause damn, they're good. <laughs> so, and learn what to give a fuck about and what not to give a fuck about. And I will give you a spoiler. Uh, he said, pretend you're born with a limited number of fucks. Mm. So don't, just hand them out randomly to everything and everything that pisses you off. Reserve, reserve and give a fuck about the things that really matter. And for most people, I think that's biodiversity and wildlife and conservation and the future of hunting and fishing and wildlife viewing. So give a yeah. fuck about that yeah. and pray to the evidence, God. Amen. Amen. <laughs> right on. Thanks, Adam. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Appreciate you uh, taking the time today and uh, look look forward to hearing your show in the future, Mark. Curtis? Oh, you bet. Today's episode is once again supported by iHunter. If you are interested in getting their public land subscription, which you should be, head over to web.ihunterapp.com and use the code THCPODCAST for 20% off your first year of the public land subscription. This code is available for the BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia apps. Honestly, if you haven't tried out the feature, you guys really should. I use it in the field for scouting. I use it for planning hunting and fishing trips, man. And even if I'm just sitting on the couch, I'm just e-exploring places to kind of just checking out where private land and public land are. And it's really cool. Thanks again to the folks at iHunter for their continuing support of what we do here at the Hunter Conservationists. We really appreciate it. Go check them out. And thanks again to the Hideout Restaurant and Brew House for sponsoring this episode. Inside Dining is now open, so why not pop down and order something off the fantastic menu and grab a pint? 
We really do love the food and beer at the hideout and love that they are such a big supporter of what we do here at the Hunter Conservationist as well. So thanks again, and make sure you pop down to see them next time you are in Cranbrook. Which will be pretty soon because the travel restrictions are coming off in the summer. So uh, cool. Thanks again, Adam. Appreciate it. Um, look forward to having you back on the show again when there's some like cool topic to dig into. Appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks guys. All right, everybody. We will see you in the next episode.